Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Lee Lewis is the Artistic Director of the Queensland Theatre Company. She'd only been in the job for a month when COVID arrived, necessitating a re-evaluation of the way we conceived, constructed and presented theatre. Armed with optimism and practical invention, Lee forged ahead to consider what the theatre might look like and the delivery of that theatre experience when audiences and creatives were able to convene once more. An urgent drive to stage new and classic stories with Australian perspectives has guided Lee in assembling an exciting repertoire of theatre for the QTC's 2022 season. We also learned of the exciting path that Lee had forged from eager youth, absorbing every theatrical experience she was able to access, to actor training in New York, to leading two of the country's main stage theatre companies, Sydney's Griffin Theatre and now the Queensland Theatre Company. It is a journey of great ambition, passion and need to make theatre, to tell stories and to affect an audience. She is insightful, reflective and possessed of a contagious enthusiasm. It was a terrific treat to talk theatre with Lee Lewis. The wonders of technology. Are limited, shall we say. (laughs) Yes, and we've been forced to sort of discover it all um, in the last... It has been quite a Nearly two years, hasn't it? Yeah, nearly two years. It's been quite a transformation of both the artistic community and the audience community as well. Our capacity to work in this space has increased, has been accelerated by the events. We'll see how it plays out over the next couple of years, but we're talking about a very different different relationship to technology now than we were two years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and given us access to, to theatre all over the world. Well, it has. I used, to, uh, I used to read, when I was little, I used to read reviews. Uh, there was a compilation of reviews from the New York Critics Circle or something, a book in a library, and I would read reviews of the plays from this magazine from somewhere overseas uh, and imagine the, imagine the plays. So getting to see some of the digital uh, recordings of productions has been just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I miss those days a little bit, those, those subscriptions to Theatre World and, um, you know, th- those, those American theatre magazines that you get to sort of that would profile the latest plays on Broadway and uh, you could... It was similar to sort of getting the, the LP of the latest musical on Broadway and sort of taking it home and just devouring it. Oh, it's true. It's true. But I was so betrayed by it all because I remember reading these reviews out of London of works that were extraordinary. Uh, even now when National Theatre Live started going, I would read the reviews. You go, oh, I have to see that. And then I go on and watch the, the recording. I'm like, oh, but it was terrible. 
<laughs> and so I realized, I realized just that that subjectivity of review. Uh, and I was I was appalled when I got to America at how much bad theater there was when I'd only read about read good reviews of things. And I, so it was quite a reckoning at a certain point, understanding that that work is made for a particular culture and you take it outside of that culture. And I can sit there and go, I don't think it's very good, but that's just because I'm Australian. It wasn't made mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, as an artist, are you a fan of reviewers? They're a necessary evil, aren't they? They're a part of the... Uh... No, I don't think they're an, an evil. I think, unfortunately, the the industry of critical discussion about, about live works has been so demolished over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, it's become unuseful as a part of critical discourse in a, in a city. It used to be an interesting place to... To, for discussion about work and about impact of work. But now I just, I, there are not a lot of reviewers where I'm interested in their opinion because I actually don't think they are reviewers. I think they're expressing uncontextualized opinion. Um, I don't have a lot of time for that. And often, honestly, most of them are bad writers. And that's the hardest thing for me to do is actually read bad writing. Yeah. So I read them yeah. because I have to, because I have to manage the impact on actors. But I don't, there are only a couple of people who write about theatre now in this country um, who I would, uh, who, whose opinion I would take into consideration when it comes mm. to reflecting on my own work. So, and that's not ego. That's just I've got no time for people who are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and we know who, whose opinion we trust and, and who we go to for, for counsel and advice. And, and it's not, that's not me looking for positive review at all. I've found some reviewers very interesting in their examination of, of especially new plays. Once the production is made, they've seen things I haven't been able to see and I've appreciated that perspective. Um, but so it's not about positive or negative. It's actually about interesting minds. There are just not that many interesting minds left in the critical review space. Yeah. And, of course, I didn't mean that we're evil as in a Cruella de Vil type <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy that question about contextualising of work and and co- comparison and that question of of examination of what has been made as opposed to what was intended those eyes are incredibly useful and i enjoy that um and you know it's it's funny it's you have a i i had a, a very different relationship to it when i was an actor and i'm very conscious that part of my job as a director is to actually help actors navigate that space now in a much more permanent way. You know, you used to have a review in a newspaper and the newspaper used to be thrown out. It was only nerds like me that would go and look them up years later. But now it's in that online space. And we all know that if you get a bad review, everybody rushes to read it, right? Especially if it's if it's acidic in any way. Mm-hmm. People rush to read it, which means it sits at the top of the search for years. And you go, great, fabulous. And if there's something been said about a particular actor or a writer in there, it it kills me because you go, that person's going to carry that for years yeah. and people will search under their name and come up with those words. And I, I don't think the writers of, of those extreme crits are taking enough responsibility for the damage that they can do in the long term for someone's reputation. Well, living in New York for the period that you did, you would be familiar with a, a, a reviewer called John Simon. Yes, who, indeed. Who exactly fitted that bill. <laughs> mm-hmm. And look, it used to be that your theatre critics, whatever their bent was, were some of the best educated minds in in the theatre and and people who saw more theatre than I could ever get to as a director or as an actor. And so you were dependent on those minds for context. And they had a huge responsibility in in 
talking to very wide audiences about whether they should spend their night in that particular theatre. And I know that they used to be able to make or break a show, but but very rarely did they show pony for themselves. Very rarely was it about their uh, personality. It was more about incredibly rigorous opinion formed by what they saw in front of them. Um, it was it was interesting. It, mm. it was interesting I, and harsh. I mean, I never received a, a harsh review in New York, and I don't know what that would have been like to have invested all the money that they do in some of those Broadway shows and to be panned. I was never I was never in that situation to have that kind of loss, but. But I did receive some very beautiful reviews as an actor, and I know that it, it flattered me no end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it tends to be the bad ones we remember. Um, Always. Lee, as we, Two as bad we, words. Two bad words. Mm. And, and you carry that, carry that scar Always. forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee, as we know, theatre is ephemeral. It, it shines brightly for a period and then, then it vanishes and, and, and only survives... In the memory, you've just um, concluded a a new Australian work, a production um, of Return to the Dirt by Steve Peary. What's the aftermath of a production like for you? Do you go through a grieving period of some sort? Absolutely. It's the week. Well, as soon as it opens, I grieve for a bit because it's beyond my control. I can still go in and give notes and shape it, but really... Night by night, the the actors gain more and more expertise in the play and I have less and less. Uh, So I let go at a certain point then. Then once it closes, I miss those people. My body's ready to read a show report at 11 o'clock at night, make sure they're all okay so they can do the next day, you know, take the temperature of that audience and see if the the work is working. I I have hopes for the play beyond. My next job with Return to the Dirt is to see if I can convince Mitchell Butel to take it down in South Australia Uh, (laughs) because I think it would work beautifully as a story down there. Uh, So there are conversations that exist beyond. It's been published. um, So that's uh, up here in Queensland. So that's lovely in that people can find the play for themselves, read and discover what it could be because I do think there are more productions inside that play. Uh, but yeah, very much grief. Uh, not too, and it's not too bad when you've done your job, when it's actually met its audience and and it's actually given the audience those little bits of wisdom that are packed inside it. So they take those bits of wisdom out into the world. Uh, that that that's satisfying. Um, but letting go of it, you know, it, it's hived in you. It's a chunk of my life. It's like a year of my life has been spent in that space. And my memory is my memory of my life is actually formed by the plays that I do at those particular times, and that becomes part of my past. Mm. So it's yeah, it's hard to let go. Uh, there are some sentences you never let go of. There's a sentence in Return to the Dirt that says, "Grief is a fingerprint, unique and lasting," and, I, uh, and that will always stay with me. He said something about grief in a way that I hadn't heard before, and I, I really loved that. And I'll carry that with me, tuck it away in my head. Um, but yeah, letting go is hard. Love looks with the heart, not with the mind. Therefore, is winged Cupid painted blind? Uh, that's what I take away from a Midsummer Night's Dream. It's true. There are those particular lines of dialogue that just just resonate. They they touch they some part things, of the soul. They say things far better than you could, which is why we need why we need our writers because they do they distill so much of my badly formed thoughts into something beautiful, you know, like a little suitcase I can put mm. put my life into, you know, if I'm like better. Um, 
the yeah, economy like of words. Beautiful dresses. Yeah, a beautiful dress that you have hanging in the in the closet. I might not be able to wear it anymore, but it's still there. I can't. Why don't I let go of it? Because it's so beautiful. It's the same thing with a sentence. Yeah. Two mm. plays that you you've uh, worked on productions of over the last twelve months are Prima Facie. Well, that's a, that's a play that returns and returns, which is is excellent. And your production has has got it nosed on the world stage. Also, there's a production in in London next year, isn't there? Yeah, it's really exciting. I was so worried. Um, I was so worried that COVID would bury the play. That it was because it happened before, and uh, the tour of the play was the next thing that was going to happen. And Susie was in conversation with producers in New York and in London, not for our production. And that's really important to me. I'm not interested necessarily in touring an Australian production or insisting on that. I'm really interested in other countries picking up our stories, our playwrights. Uh, and making the works for there so that they can actually live as, as new works in that space as well. So Susie was in these conversations. Then COVID happened and everything evaporated in that way. And I was so worried because I think there's something so timely and necessary about what she's written. And formally, not often does a playwright find the exact right form for the story that needs to be told. And there's something about the, the loneliness of the one-person show that speaks to the experience of a, a, a survivor of sexual harassment or assault. There's a loneliness inside that. So that one person standing on stage speaking, the courage to do that em is an emblem for the experience it's trying to express. So I'm, I'm so thrilled. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to London to see it, but I really want to. And what's so beautiful is that there, there are a couple of, um, in the Griffin space when, when we first made it, there are a couple of donors who helped support that particular production and they're going to get to see the work on the London stage. I got an email from them saying they're going. And I just, I thought that was quite wonderful because there are some extraordinary philanthropists in Australia at the moment who are putting, like, putting their money where their theatre hearts are and helping to support stories that otherwise wouldn't get on stage. And when they can see that their, their involvement actually helps a story go so much further it's, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like backing a theatre racehorse. I don't, I don't know, but I'm so thrilled for them. Similarly, that that sort of happened with, with a particular donor on The Bleeding Tree as well. Um, uh, the partnership in a funny way that I had with her, she was one of the first people that read it and went, oh, I really love it. I'll put my money into this. And I was like, really? And she was like, oh, yes, of course. And, you know, that, that friendship then around that work has stayed. And I, I, I find that the story of where our, where our stories can go is just beginning. Like, um, and, and that, thought of, that thought of Susie's words on that English stage speaking to a whole other country in a way that is peculiarly Australian. She might be, she, I know she's adapting it for a London audience right. um, and for British law because there are differences, obviously. So she's done that work and um, Judy Comer is a beautiful British actress. So that'll be, it'll... But but I don't think I don't think anyone but an Australian could think their way through that scenario like like an Australian can. It, it's not it's still distinctively Australian to me in the way it thinks, and I think that's a real gift to England because I think there's there's a a way of thinking that we have that um, we can offer to the world. And we're going to see your production back in Sydney. Um... That went off the rails with COVID when it shut down in June. I was I just finished the dress rehearsal and there was a, a there was rumbling that the border was going to close, so I had to leave. So I didn't get to see it open, and then it shut down a couple of days later. But now I'm going to be back in time to see opening night. So it's almost as if the last 
few months hasn't happened at all. It's very yeah. strange. <laughs> uh, and, we, and we can do it quite easily because they hadn't even touched the lights or the sound system. We, it was as we left it. So we just have to kind of walk in and do the show. I mean, I just walk in. Sheridan Harbridge has to re-rehearse it. Well, it's a, a big to work do. to pick up. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's got a bit. Well, a bit to do. Well, it's an electric production which appeared really in the in the wake of the the Me Too movement, so it, it resonated loudly with with uh, its audiences. Um, the other play that you had touched on in the last twelve months is Our Town, which also resonated tremendously because in a time of of isolation and lockdown and shutdown, a play about community was exactly the tonic that that everybody needed. So my question is, in, in selecting plays, do you look for product which you feel will, will resonate loudly with, with the audience? Oh, absolutely. I do all of this for an audience. So it's really that question of what do I think people want or need to see, even if they haven't realised that yet. What do I, and, and the bit, most important thing for me is, is staying connected to a community so I I'm, I'm just the first audience for an idea and that's all I do is imagine seeing it. Is that what I want to see now? What would that do for me now? Uh, and it was a really interesting thing to program because we, at the time we were doing lots of surveys of audiences because, of course, when I was programming, we weren't on stage at all. We're surveying our audience saying, what do, you want to, what do you want to see? And, of course, people were saying, we want to see a comedy. We want to see funny things so that we're taken away. And I kind of went, I'm not sure if that's true. Um, so it was quite a risk to put that play up because there's such a sadness inside our town. Uh, but it was, but in a funny way, it allowed people to grieve, I think. I, to, there was so much lost last year, especially. Uh, and, and we needed a place to acknowledge and put that grief that wasn't real. No one wanted a COVID documentary play or anything like that. Oh, heaven forbid. Um, <laughs> but we wanted a place where, a, a story where it was okay to be sad and happy because I think there have been swings and roundabouts in this time and uh, and there are lots of swings and roundabouts in our town. So it, it was it, it worked beautifully for in a way that I'd hoped in that what was also exciting is that it, there haven't been very many productions of our town up here in um, Brisbane. So people in the audience didn't necessarily know the story at all. So they, they didn't know that Emily died. So wow. what I got is a window into the first audience, Thornton Wilder's experience of doing it for the first time when no one knew where he was going with the story, I, which is so amazing because you can't do a production of Our Town in America where people don't know the ending. <laughs> the third act isn't a surprise in America. So you're kind of going, there's, there's more curiosity in the audience as to how are you going to do the end? Uh, whereas here, people were shocked that Emily died. They, and they loved the play. Like we had a few people doing like, like what I, I read about happening in, in Thornton Wilder's first production where people were leaving after the first act going, I have no idea what's going on here. What even is this? And that was what was happening. And we had a few people who came out and the, we, our front of house team, our, our ushers, we, uh, got into convincing people to go back. They're like, no, 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 stay to the end. It's totally worth it. And these people sort of stayed to the end and they came out and went, you're right, it was totally worth it. I didn't have any idea of what was going on in the first part, but she said by the, they said by the, by the end, I love this play. So it was really a beautiful community play, but also a great theatrical adventure. And, and I don't think I'll ever have that again, that feeling of like, I, of feeling like Thornton Wilder did in those first few weeks when he first did it in the 30s. I, yeah. I know that, was, that was a gift I hadn't anticipated. 
Well, you must view it as a tremendously healing play because I'm aware of a production that you directed when you were a baby director, if I can say that very respectfully, at the New Theatre in, in, in Newtown where, where the, the players who came out and presented the play were survivors from uh, September 11. I'd, I'd moved back to Australia not that long before and I just before September 11, and I felt I carried a lot of guilt for not being there with my friends. Um, and when the opportunity to direct a work at the new happened, I think that was in 2004, I couldn't celebrate Americanness without acknowledging where America was at that point. And so, yes, the beautiful actors doused themselves in flower, I believe. <laughs> the new theatre, we had to go with cheap things. There was a lot of flower. And they were coming. I was so haunted by those photos um, of survivors of September 11, cu covered in the white um, and grey detritus of their friends. Um, and I, I tried to point towards that with it. and and suggest that there was something of America that died on that day. And that was the suggestion inside the production. Um, it was hard to do because there's so much happiness inside our town. And, but the, the grief, I suppose that was my re response to the grief that I felt around September 11th. I lost a few friends uh, when the towers collapsed. So it was probably a memorial play for them more than anything at that point. So to come at it in the scheme of... Brisbane and 2021, it was more hopeful this time. Hope yeah. in the idea of community. I'm also much older. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd moved earlier, like earlier, I think that first production was, I was more of an Emily. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> this time I was, uh, this time I was more of a, a Mrs. Webb, to be really honest. Um, I, and you never know which way your life is going to go, but um I'd lost two children uh, in making this play and this time. And I, I, it was, there was a shock when I realised when I started rehearsing the third, the third act that I was just like Mrs Webb. I knew what it was like to lose two children and how horrible that is. So I found that my passage through the play has been one thing. I, I'm interested to see if I go back to it 20 years from now and whether I'll be the stage manager. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Let, let's, let's hope so. It is such a beautiful play. Such a beautiful play. It is. But, but so our town, Thornton Wilder and Prima Facie, the wonderful Susie Miller, you're working with a playwright who's very much alive and, and a playwright who has long since gone to God. What's, it, what's the process like for you in, in working with a, a, a playwright that you have access to and one that you don't? Oh, they're just very different living experiences that a classic is lonelier in a funny way it's you talking to this creator across time it, it, everybody also knows that the play works so if the production doesn't it's all on you it's pretty clear <laughs> um, whereas a new play a new play with a playwright uh sometimes the playwright doesn't know what they've written they've got an instinct but they don't know how it's going to land and, and honestly until you put it in front of its first audience neither of you know so at least you have a companion. <laughs> so it's not quite as lonely. It's complicated. Uh, and it's it's the difference for me between riding around in a Rolls Royce and fanging down a hill in a billy cart that you've built. <laughs> Those are the two different 
transport experiences that are akin to the difference between a classic play and a new one. I just go, like the new new work, you hope to God that by the time time you're at the bottom of the hill, you're at least, you still got two two wheels and the sparks (laughs) haven't lit a fire. And if you get that to that point, you go, yes, yes. uh, And you win. It doesn't often happen. Sometimes all the wheels come off the billy cart and you end up in a pile at the bottom of the hill going, oh, that didn't work. Uh, But not not that often. Um, Whereas whereas, uh, the Rolls-Royce, you feel in the big works that every every line is there for a reason and you've just got to figure out a good enough reason to say it again. And John Bell said something interesting. He said to me, you've got to treat a new work like a classic and a classic like a new work. And and there is a truth in that. You've got to, the reason, the why to do the play is so obvious in a new work, but the why to do the play has to be that obvious in the classic, um, not just because it's a good play, that's not enough. Um, there's, there's still got to be, a, there's got to be a new urgency inside it, either in the way that you're doing it or the play comes back in, in and of itself, um, is needed now. Uh, so there are some plays where you go, I love the play, I've just got no reason to do it now. Uh, and so that's... The day-to-day is very different too with the classic. Sometimes you have an estate to deal with that won't let you change the play. Um, Sometimes they're dead long enough where it's not an issue and then you can really start to play. But then if you're changing the classic, then you're reauthoring your work. And it's not often that I I feel the impulse to author. I can do it and I have done it and I know it rises up. Sometimes you, you you need to reshape the play to say the thing that you want it to say now. So you're using the play to speak to the audience. Uh, but with a new play, for me, it's really about submitting to the playwright, especially in the first production, submitting to what the playwright wants to say and working to help them say it formally. Um, yeah. So the authoring impulse, if it's a new play, often I, I kind of try to steer directors away from new plays and, uh, if they've still got so much to prove or so much to say that is their own, you can't use a play, a new play, to say the thing you want to say. You've got to say the thing the play wants to say. Yeah. It's a very collaborative exercise, I imagine, with the playwright, who is, yeah, is. Be there in the, in the room, in the rehearsal room. Not the whole time. It depends on the playwright. Yeah. Uh, it depends on where they are in their journey. I usually try to get, try to ask the playwright to leave in sort of somewhere towards the end of week two and through week three until it's all sort of put back together again. I think sometimes the actors need a freedom. With the yeah. not the person that wrote the the words needs to not be in the room while the actors are trying to learn it because there's a period of time where you learn it badly. You don't know what you're saying underneath. You're just trying to jam the words into your head and. It can be really ugly and sometimes that's a bit traumatic for the playwrights. Watching actors say their words badly is horrible. So I just go <laughs> away for a bit, come back when they're starting to get good and then we can see what's working and what needs to change. And, and sometimes it'll be better than you can imagine and sometimes it, it's, it won't, the words won't actually be giving you the right thought with that actor. So how do you reshape it? So you reshape the play for the actors who are playing it. Um, but it is actually, well, it, in the best versions, it, it should be very collaborative. And that's always been my experience. Um, it's not easy. People use the word collaboration and, that, and there seems to be some sort of like, I don't know, some magical halo around that word that it implies that, it, you know, it's positive. Like it's wrestling. You really wrestle over stuff. And sometimes your instinct says it's going to be this and the playwright says it's going to be that. And as a director of new plays, I, I do feel the necessity to 
especially with younger playwrights, newer playwrights, to let them have it their way so that they can actually build their instinct for what works or doesn't work, as opposed to me fixing. I don't I never think about me fixing stuff. I hate that thought. People say, well, we need, we need to fix that. I'm like, no, the playwright's trying to say something. They haven't managed to say it. So if they need to hear it in that unfixed way, then that's what they need. It sometimes is difficult to do as a director. Um, or depends on the relationship. You say to the playwright, look, that's the way that let me shape this and see what you think about what I do. If you prefer it your way, I'll go back to your way. Um, and that's when you're starting to add in ingredients that they haven't necessarily written themselves. But it's their story. They own it. So you kind of work for them in a funny way. It sounds like as a director, you have to be a, a politician of sorts to um, sum up the, 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 the personnel that you're working with, whether they be actors or playwrights or designers or whatever, at various stages of their career um, and work out the best point of entry to sort of service what they need and get the best out of them. A little bit. It's a whole lot of different jobs. Directing is a very strange thing to do. Um, there's a lot of manipulation involved. <laughs> there's no better word for use it for it. I mean, again, yeah. manipulation sounds negative, but actually it's gentle shaping. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, one of my favourite films is Inception because <laughs> you kind of go, how deep do you have to plant the seed of someone thinking it's their idea for them to actually fully own it? And I, I'm interested in that place of, of performers feeling like they actually own the work, for writers feeling like it's all theirs, that I've actually just helped that. I'm a director. I always feel a little bit disturbed when people talk about the directing because I think if my work's too visible, then I'm not doing a good job. A good job. I should disappear inside it. No one should be talking about directing. Um, that's just me. Other directors like being that, that blaze of light that sits at the front where you, you kind of go, oh, my God, that's amazing. But I, I come from a different heritage of, of directors um, that disappear is important to me. Yeah. What, what were the plays that at high school or probably maybe primary school that you were first exposed to that perhaps were on the syllabus that you studied in English class or? Oh, uh, I, look, I don't necessarily remember a lot of the ones I did in school, but I did speech and drama. So I had a lot of plays outside of school. <laughs> Um, and I remember I was hungry for them and and you couldn't get them online and we would go to Sydney. I, I grew up in the country and we'd drive to Sydney and um, there was a performing arts bookshop and I used to go there and I used to save up my money and buy plays. Um, Shakespeare, obviously. Um, and then we, I also had a, a, lo a local um, repertory company um, called the Leader Tafel Theatre in my little town. And it was, I, I, it was a different time in government funding and they, they funded... Uh, uh, professionals to work in the town and then they would hire in amateurs from the town to work with it. So they used to do um, four or five shows a year. And so I was very formed by the plays that they did too. So I grew up with a very traditional little theatre exposure experience where we would see these productions of Neil Simon and Alan Akeborn and um, repertory comedies out of England and America that I, I'm very grateful for because it gave me a, a library in my head, not just on the page. I, I saw a lot of plays um, and they were all pretty PG versions of them. So that was fine. I could go. Uh, but I remember um, J.B. Priestley. Uh, I, re I remember Wing Pinero, um, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde and Noel Coward, all done in like really probably quite, you know, bodgy small theatre ways but it didn't matter you know the stories 
took off in your head and um I've got very strange and beautiful memories of some of those plays. I still would probably love to go back and look at some look at some Priestley. Time Time in the Conways was a beautiful play. I got to do yeah. when I was when I was a teenager. I got to be the young girl in it because I could remember lines. So that was sort of my theatre beginning. And school kind of took a back seat to that in a funny way. I went to a Catholic girls' school, and so I always had problems talking about the difficult things in plays, which was quite wonderful. I had a great English teacher called Sister Paulinus, and I remember her talking about the difficulties in Measure for Measure. (laughs) It's like a puddle. We can step around it. And I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) We stepped around all the difficulties of Measure for Measure. Um, But but, so I, I was struggling at that time to pull together how I had to behave in school in order to succeed, as opposed to where my theater brain was taking me. So there was a lot of tension in that space, but it wasn't bad tension. It was, it, it probably is what spat me out into the New York space where I went running, looking for more to how do you resolve that tension? And I ended up in a drama school with Andre Serban and, and Bogart. And that was extraordinary. You know, they kind of put whatever theater ego or grounding I had, they both just pulled it apart. I had no, no exposure to that kind of theater making. And that became my form, formative years, but they were doing it on top of a very conventional theatre knowledge, which was kind of a perfect preparation for them both. Um, I understood the kinds of theatre they were reacting against. <laughs> I'd, I'd done it. Um, and they kind of reformed my brain in a funny way. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of, with, yeah. Sorry, Lee. A, a lot of theatre schools have that reput- unfortunate reputation of, oh, they go, you go to drama school and they break you down and then they, they rebuild you. But it's, it's more... Um, uh, disposing of, of bad habits and and reprogramming yeah. your thinking. Yeah. yeah, you yeah you come in as you should when you're. I was uh, sort of a late teenage space with so much ego, which you should have. You conquer the world ego, yeah. and you don't know how to listen to and respect other minds that are far ahead of yours at that point with so much more knowledge. So they have kind of got to teach you to listen, and it's not. And you come in with all of the ego that it took to, God, I mean, seriously, what kind of ego did I think where I was going to, where I went all the way over to New York and auditioned for, and thought I should just be at drama school overseas, you know? And I love that young woman for that kind of sense of just go, just do it, conquer the world. But yeah, then I ran up against these theatre geniuses and I was at sea. They didn't have to break me down. I just like had to surrender to them because they were so much smarter than me. And that's, and yeah, you do lose yourself for a while, um, but you should, because it's actually about absorbing like their incredible generosity and sharing all that knowledge. And it's knowledge before you've got experience to understand it. I spent the next 10 years after those two brains under, like, equipped to face a world that was going to ask big things of me. And if you think about it, you have to give over because... <laughs> You know, I think they must have been in their 50s when they were teaching me. And I go, they understood these Spanish uh, golden age classics far better than I would, you know. And Bogart was at the point of deconstructing Marshall McLuhan to make some of her great signature works. And I kind of go, there's no way I could keep up with them. All I could do was receive all of that knowledge and then use it over the course of my life. And um, so every day they're still in my head, in conversation in my head, and I go, that breaking it wasn't a breaking down it was a surrender to people who are far smarter than me and then a sense they've like dumped a whole lot of fertilizer in and then you wait and see what comes out you know and you 
it took it took three years after the three years of drama school for me to actually have an original thought because I was all their thoughts for a while. Um, and then, you know, when I started directing, uh, it took me a long time to know w- what was my thought and as opposed to what I was just stealing outright from them. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, at a certain point I went, oh, no, I am actually am a director. I'm not just someone stealing from them in order to pay rent, <laughs> which is what it felt like for a long time. Did you realise at the time that you were working with such giants of the theatre? Because sometimes yes. we're working with people and we don't realise until several years later that, wow, I just had, no, I knew. I, I had that experience. You, I knew. you felt it. That thing, I, I knew who they were. I'd read about them. Um, I'd read about their plays. I read about their brains. I met them in the room. It was completely obvious. It was kind of like it wasn't about being starstruck. It was about being genuinely outclassed in every single way, in every moment, and you just go, Oh, I got to I got to go back to the beginning. I, I and I loved that. I loved that thing of meeting the real minds, the people who are the originating thinkers, uh, and going, oh God, yeah, right. I couldn't even understand how you got to the first point of even having that thought of questioning that. I didn't. I didn't have a particularly radical brain, which they do, um, and. Yeah, from the beginning, absolutely new and was incredibly grateful. And, and yeah, like, uh, and I, that's probably why I went overseas. I went looking for something I, I thought that I couldn't find here. And then, interestingly, I came back to Australia looking for something that I definitely couldn't find in America. So, you know, this, and, and it's taken me 20 years to go, no, I actually didn't make the right decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What um, what work are you getting once you graduate from Columbia? Um, are you oh. You're working on this main stage. I was, or? I was hi- um, I was very lucky. I was um, hired while I was in my first my third year um, by Julie Taymor. Oh, so wow. I went into one of Julie's shows uh, yeah. and so started working before I graduated, uh, which was a strange but great thing to do. And so I just kept. I didn't ever have that question about what will my work be I just was part of a absorbed very quickly into the theatre community and worked a lot with some great great people and kept going in that crazy way that you do um sort of more in the the off-Broadway place but then Julie's show went to Broadway and so the show took me with it and um yeah so uh it was amazing it was amazing uh and then I had the very (laughs) good luck to fall in love with a beautiful Australian man and uh, we decided to move back to Australia. So I, I moved back to Australia and went from working very full-time in American theatre to starting starting again in Australia with people that hadn't necessarily heard of Anne Bogart and Julie Taymor and yeah. Andre Saran and they were like, who's this and what is this? And I was like, oh, okay. So I, I realised that there wasn't the kind of theatre that I wanted to make as an actor happening here. So I evolved into a director so I could have the kinds of rooms I was interested in. Um, and it kind of didn't matter to me if I was actually making it myself as an actor or if I was directing it. And then directing just allowed me to do a range of work that I wouldn't have been able to do as an actor. So that was interesting, that kind of evolution. But um, a few years in to directing, Dad said to me, so do you ever think you'll act again? And I was like, actually, I don't think so, Dad. I think I am actually a director. He said, well, thank God. It took you long enough to figure it out. And I was like, 
Well, thanks for telling. He said, you were always a director. I was like, what do you mean I was always a director? He said, oh, well, think about it. And I did. And it turns out I was. It's just there didn't used to be female directors when I was little. Mm. So I did the thing that I could see, which was acting. Like there were female actors. That was fine. But Anne Bogart was the first female director I'd ever met or seen. And it took a long time till there was another one, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, so it took a while for me to actually go, this is something I could, that women do. Um, and it wasn't that, uh, again, I was lucky in that I was exposed to, I was, it just happened to catch the wave of it being possible 10 years before. And it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, but you know, I had Robin Nevin, um, there was Marion Potts. There were some women, not a lot, to be honest. There were a lot in the indie space. Um, and my first years as a director were very much in making indie work. And there were a lot of really good female directors around me, Sarah, um, Sarah Goods, uh, there was Fiona Pulford, Tanya Denny, um, Tanya Goldberg, uh, and after me, Shannon Murphy, Sarah Giles. Um, there were lots of interesting women who, who were directing in the indie space at that time. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, not all of them are directing now, but they've all got careers in the arts in different ways. So I, I just caught the wave of possibility. Um, and it wasn't till later that my head kind of hit the, the theatre glass ceiling. But that's, I feel like, I might not have broken it, but we kind of put some real cracks in it now. Yeah. So, Lee, as an actor, what did you learn about being a director? Hmm. Um... I learned, I learned how hard it is sometimes to follow a psychology that's not yours. Um, and sometimes you can follow and sometimes you genuinely can't follow the psychology of the director, but the director's psychology is the thing that builds the play. And you've got to be able to catch their psychology in order to do the version of the play that they're seeing in their head. Um, if you can't see the psychology, you can't make it real. You can't actually, you've got to take someone else's psychology into your body and build it. Um, I suppose I, I know what a physical process it is. Um, I know how, I know very, I've got various forms of vulnerability. Sometimes they don't ask, they don't know, directors don't know what they're asking you. And unless you tell them, they will never know how hard it is. Um, I've, you know, I've stood naked on a Broadway stage, so I know what it is as a director to ask an actor to do that. Mm. Um, and I know how some directors are good at managing that space and some are just terrible, <laughs> truly yeah. terrible. I think that's actually helped me as an artistic director to know that there are very different directors and no directors, no directors are the same. There isn't a process in a room. Uh, so hiring directors has been helped by my acting experience because most directors don't spend time in other directors rooms so you don't know how other directors direct yeah. you know unless you've been an assistant for a long time and seen different methodologies I suppose um, but as an actor I was in a lot of different rooms with some I was very fortunate to work with some of the greatest directors on the planet to know how good they are and and all with good processes very different vastly different but never abusive and so it meant that when I came up against directors who were abusive, I knew what that was. I didn't think that was just how directing is. Um, so that it stood me in good stead, having very good people in my starting place. 
Um, it ma allowed me to understand that some of the directors just suck. And that's still the case. <laughs> I just, you know, I trust actors. I, I, when I'm hiring directors, I like to talk to the actors that they've worked with. I use the actors as reference um, yeah. rather than people who've seen the show because I kind of go, would you work with that person again? Why? Um, is an interesting question to put to an actor about a director. Um, but I don't have a, I don't want to act. I don't, that's not something that I want. So I'm never trying to like make up for the fact that I'm not acting. People always worry about that. Um, actors worry. Um, but no, I think a lot of, a lot of directors do start as actors. Some of them start as designers. They're shaping it from the outside to the end. I've just got a different different process. In it's been interesting part, being partnered in life with a photographer because he sees things um, from the outside, and so he's helped me build a, a visual capacity that I probably didn't have before um, to see a frame, um, to see the stage as a frame, and to actually know what I'm shaping. And compositionally, he's helped enormously. Because obviously, as an actor, you don't, you've got, you can see, you can sort of see composition, you can place yourself within it, you've got an instinct for how to place yourself well, but, um, but you can't see the whole stage picture. I remember in this, um, working for Julie Taymor, I could never understand why at a certain point, there'd be always this applause at a particular point in this number. <laughs> it was because I could never turn around and see the big light bulb wall behind me and what it was actually doing. I never got to see it. It was only when I saw the <laughs> photographs that I understood the picture that she'd made, ah, yeah. you know, and she was one of the, she's one of the world's great picture makers on stage. Her visual capacity knows no peer really in the theatre space. Um, but you never know it as an actor. You're inside it. I mean, if you're inside it and then you kind of go, oh, I hate this thing. What is this moment? And then you see the photo and you go, oh, my God, that's brilliant. Okay, now I don't care. My labour is well spent because I know I'm creating a, a vision that is extraordinary. Um, so then you give over to that person. So, and I, so I understand that sometimes actors have got no idea what it is that I'm doing and I have to kind of try to find ways to show them so that they know that it's worth it because sometimes acting is just miserable. <laughs> <laughs> contributing to the composition. Yeah. Lee, as, as an associate director and then uh, taking the helm as artistic director and CEO of the Griffin Theatre Company, tell me about creating work on that iconic stage. I mean, it's this, a little bit bigger than a postage stamp probably. <laughs> Actually, it's surprisingly big. Um, the stage space relative to the size of the audience. It's quite big. The dimensions would surprise you. When we shifted Bleeding Tree from, from the Griffin space to the Wharf One space at SDC, dimensions were not that different. There was a, there was wow. a couple of extra metres in, in width. The shape of it was different and gave the impression of being bigger, but actually not. So it's, it's a deceptive stage, that one, and it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful space to spend a lot of time in because it's so strange <laughs> and there are so few tricks that you can pull on the audience. You can't use a lot of the theater, traditional theatre tools of illusion. There's not a lot of illusion in that space. So you really have to focus on performance and words. Those are your, they can be, those are your allies as a director in the space. And if, those, if you don't love those, if you're actually a big picture maker, it's not the space for you um, because there's not a lot that you can do. A, there's not a lot of space to move. There's no, there are no wings and there's no, 
fly tower. Uh, there's also no basement and, um, no, you know, no showers in the dressing room. Uh, so many things that you can't do. Uh, but what you can do is really close that distance between performer and audience. You can make people feel like that actor is performing right in their face and that if the words are worth it, then there's, n I think there's no better space. And the struggle is to create that intimacy in bigger spaces because yeah. the audience is craving that intimacy, um, yeah. that sense of real connection. And making that in the big proscenium stage is the big is the real challenge. Yeah. The Griffin is 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 one of the most exciting spaces in Australia. I think you climb those stairs every time I climb them. I think what awaits us, and it never disappoints. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing your production of of the homosexuals or, or faggots, and you had this Darlinghurst apartment loft apartment on that stage because it was it was a farce. It had all the elements of of stairs and doors and windows, and and I just thought, wow. I've seen it all now. If you can do a, do a farce on that stage, you've achieved something. Yeah. Oh, look, and I learned on that one that if you're doing a farce, you have to build steel frames for your doors because right. actually regular timber frames will not stand up to the force of Simon Burke fanging through a door and slamming it eight shows a week. <laughs> this We had to rebuild the frame because that, and, and I learned that. I was like, steel frame doors. If you want comedy and doors that steel, build in steel. <laughs> But I loved, I loved the challenge of Griffin uh, and the repeated challenge. I think that's the space that made me into a director. I wanted to be one before and I was always running to the play, but having to bring so many new works to life in that strange shape and make them work and having the chance, honestly, to make the decision about which plays, I realised until I became the artistic director at Griffin, I hadn't actually made choices about what plays I got to do. I, I, I made a living by accepting the works that had been given to me by different artistic directors, and I'm very grateful to them for the work. But I'd never successfully pitched a play to a big company and had it go on, except for once, Bell Shakespeare. I pitched to Marion Potts, um, Twelfth Night, and she recommended that to John Bell, and John went with it. And that was the only one where I'd gone, I want to do this play, and I managed to convince someone else to let me do it. The rest of them was all given. So when, so when I did my first season at Griffin, I had this little panic attack because I kind of thought maybe actually I can't, I'm not good at deciding what plays should be done. Maybe I've only been successful because I've said yes to other people's ideas. So that was actually a big step for me, was actually in following my own instincts about what the audience wants to see and getting to test those instincts. It's not always right. But you only build a good instinct by testing it. Um, and the ones that didn't work were just as valuable to me as the ones that went off, <laughs> you know, and, and, and being backed by a board and a company to take some pretty risky decisions and having those risks pay off just builds your confidence that you do know what you're talking about. Um, you know, the, the homosexuals was, you know, a commission. Uh, we commi we'd commissioned Declan Green on the back of a beautiful, Beautiful, beautiful play, eight gigabytes of hardcore pornography. And he's a beautiful writer. And it took him years to deliver that play. And, and when he did, he was so angry at the, I suppose, the, the commissioning structure, the idea that, that you're commissioned to write a play. Like the, it was like Michelangelo railing against the Pope <laughs> when it's <laughs> finished, you know, um, that, that thing. You know, it was, 
it was an amazing play to tackle for that reason because of his fury. He was literally, quite literally biting the hand that was feeding him in that, uh, in that particular production. But I loved that fury inside it and the impossibility of it. Uh, I don't know that, and it was such a play of its time, he never allowed it to be published oh. um, because there were things written in there that were just of the time, that were just okay to say in that time. And anywhere out of that time would have been, it's, offensive so only for that production at that time was that okay to say and he wasn't prepared for those words to be put down for another later time uh and and he was not wrong and and similarly we were very careful with the photographic documentation because there were things that people were doing on the stage that could only be understood in the context of that play and a random photo 10 years later would damage people and now I'm glad that we were that careful because that's true. But in that moment, at that time, that was okay. Uh, it just ideas like that don't travel across time. And he would be attacked for what he'd written at that. At and that we time. get back but to I that stand eph by it. ephemeral nature of theatre, <laughs> that it exists yeah. for a brief moment and then it's gone. It's gone. So a, a month after arriving in Brisbane uh, to take the reins of the Queensland Theatre Company, <laughs> COVID. The, the villain that is, we've all come to uh, disagree with uh, made its presence felt. Um, how frustrating. Oh, look, I just, um, I was probably about oh, six weeks in um, and I'd been meeting every day with, uh, with artists from the local community, thinking about what they wanted to, to see, what they wanted to do, really the beginning of a, a, a relationship. And then suddenly that was it. I couldn't see the work. I didn't see the work of those artists for until this year, really. So it was the strangest way to meet a city and to meet an artistic community. And it, it was an extraordinary crisis to live through and to manage uh, and to understand. And probably the first time in my life, in my theatre life, that there was a worldwide event impacting on me. Uh, in a way that connected me to colleagues around the world in a very even-handed way. Everybody was in the same situation. And it didn't matter if you were a new artistic director, an old artistic director, big, small, you were all facing the same idea of shutdown. And the existential crisis that that was, was an amazing thing to be a part of. Uh, and, and we're still in it. Uh, but there have been, talking about swings and roundabouts, massive Massive swings and roundabouts, gainings, losings, um, and knowledge. Uh, I had the incredible privilege to be in inside a company in this time, uh, and to be making decisions that will make will impact um, a theatre community for a long time. Uh, but yeah, so huge, <laughs> so huge, and still in it, and making choices and making decisions. I'm glad I came directly from a small company because I was used to constant change. Um, a small company that used to being very nimble and, and not being worried. We, you know, Griffin lost a chunk of, of funding uh, while I was there under George Brandis. Um, so very, overnight, we lost 10% of our budget which was shocking, but that actually stood me in good stead for the losing of chunks of money and for figuring out how to speak to government and things like that. So I, I was, and it was coming from a great training ground and I, I was very grateful to that for, the, for that 
knowledge that I brought from the Griffin space. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a, it has been a wild ride around the world. And I'm conscious that interestingly, um, this is brings me back to Mitchell Buttel, uh, Mitchell and I are probably the only artistic directors, <laughs> I'm gonna say almost in the world, who've delivered a full year of theatre to their audiences. So we're in a very different creative space to the rest of the world. And the biggest challenge for me is to make sure that we don't separate out, that we don't lose contact with the rest of the country or the rest of the world in the way we tell stories. Australia is in a very different position to the rest of the world because we haven't had the same relationship to death that other countries have had in the last 18 months. Yeah. Um, the, the huge death that, that will shape the generations <laughs> for the next 40 years, we haven't had that same deeply con confronting and transformative experience. Um, we're sitting on the edge of it, kind of like how Australia sat on the edge of the financial crisis um, in 2008. And, and in that time in writing, we diverged quite hugely in the new writing space to the rest of the world. And for a while, it was only Australian plays that were interesting to us because reading the plays from the rest of the world, they were speaking about things we hadn't lived. And I, I worry that that's going to be the same thing with COVID. We just started coming back together as a globe in what we were talking about. And then and I'm like, no, we can't be separate again. So that's the challenge. And also, you know, Mitchell and I are both facing programming for the next couple of years where co-productions will be complex because our, our colleagues down south have got two years backlog now of commitments to artists and plays and ideas and their challenge is how to put those works out now questioning whether they've dated whether they haven't what is your relationship to an artist who you contracted and made a commitment to and then can't put on the stage do you give them a different job is that okay you know even in restaging works that have been fully rehearsed the casts have been lost to other productions and to other dates so you can't get the same cast back so you have to re-rehearse all of these things, all of these questions are challenges for the next couple of years for artistic directors and and for the artistic community as a whole. Uh, you know, so it's COVID. Uh, can't live it, can't can't live with it, can't kill it. Isn't that the joke? Um, yes, the, the knock-on effects are extraordinary, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that you, that you just described there, that um, audience uh, certainly wouldn't have any idea about. No, nor should they, because, again, what is theatre for people? It's a it's the place that they go to for challenge, for hope, for inspiration. They shouldn't be worried about us. We should be worried about them. Yeah. <laughs> we work for them, not the other way around. And I, so how do we get out of our theatre crisis thinking space, our, our survival mode, and actually think more about the survival of our audiences? What do they need? Uh, what do they want? I've got huge concerns about federally about the the undermining of arts education and where do they find the money to to pay back those extraordinary debts? We cannot afford to be cutting our arts at this point. It's absolutely counter to everything we should be doing. If we want, they throw around the words innovation, but you kind of go, if you want innovative thinking, you can't take away the creative space from kids in primary school because that's where we need their brains to be kind of thinking about transformational ideas rather than learn this the whole stem thing i'm like yeah no make it steam because steam, you yeah. you can't win a nobel prize if you don't know how to transform something and transformation is a creative act and so you need your creative thinking in that early space otherwise our scientists will not have an inventive capacity their brains need to dance <laughs> if they want to lead not follow so so that question about where where do we 
make cuts. It cannot be in arts education. And so that's interestingly becoming something quite dominant in my head as we think about how to make works going forward. Um, there's a huge there's a huge education program at Queensland Theatre, um, always has been in the DNA of the company since day dot, um, a young, young artist's program. Uh, and it was really important in that COVID space to not cut that, <laughs> uh, to not pull out the money from that in order to do other things. And we really maintained that relationship with the teachers, with the students and with our young artists who come in and train here the whole time. And it's an amazing team of people. And doing that has actually meant our young people are actually in a really good place, which has made me realise the importance of that in their year last year and this, is knowing that the, the art, their art space hasn't disappeared. So I've got big questions about how to make that accessible to more people, how to, um, how to make our programs that go out to the schools, how to make them available to more schools, how to make them, does it need to be a national program that we do? I don't know. I don't know. But so, but again, focus on the audience. Lots to ponder. Lots yeah. to ponder. You must be buoyed by the, the success of, you know, Return to the Dirt and, and Boy Swallows Universe, which had a, a tremendous sellout season well, uh, recently. Yes. Oh, look, um, what was just so lovely about both of those shows is that they're both from uh, Brisbane boys, well, not Brisbane boys, Queensland boys, um, who've, who've taken their, that next generation of writers who've taken their uh, experiences and created extraordinary work out of it. But both of them are, are young, from the minds of young men who are not necessarily following the traditional hero journey. They're the celebration of very different thinking and, and very different ways of being. Both of them offer extraordinarily hopeful stories for young men as they look towards their future. And, and it's strange, in, you know, given the focus on, on the female narrative of the last few years to be looking at the, the narrative of young men. But I go, given male suicide rates, I feel an incredible responsibility to be speaking to young men in, in hopeful ways so that they can work their own way out of the difficulties that they have. Um, and what was beautiful was in Return to the Dirt, watching young men from schools and, and not coming in and watching the story of a young man with huge difficulties who'd managed to figure his way out to looking at living his life in a positive way. And that's not the surface of the story at all. It's a very funny play. Um, but that's the, that's the takeaway that they came went out the doors each night with, was that actually living is possible. And in a time when we've got such huge questions about the survival of the planet and a lot of apocalypse thinking, um, it's really important that some of our stories are a source of hope for people. <laughs> um, and, and I don't mean that in a Disney kind of way. I mean that in an Australian way. What is the nature of Australian hope and how do we write into that so that we're not, we're not, uh, <laughs> we're not laying hopelessness and despair as a foundation for our, our next creative thinkers? Uh, so uh, the, the, how we tell stories of Australian hope, very different to how Americans tell their stories of hope. And they need to hear different stories because their challenges are different. Uh, and similarly, uh, the European stories of hope are very different. So we're just at the point in Australian writing where we can really start to articulate what is an Australian story. Uh, what is an, not, we know what an Australian voice is, but what is an Australian story? How do we like to tell a story and how do we like to receive a story? Um, and I'm interested in fighting a battle for Australian dramaturgy when it comes to plays, our plays going overseas, how they need to change if they want to speak to international audiences. So I love the fact that out of all of the difficulty of the COVID 
uh, COVIDness that actually we finished up our year with two great new Australian plays that did so well in their own ways. I mean, of course, Trent Dalton's um, mega huge play was all, was destined to be, you know, our best-selling Australian play ever <laughs> on the Queensland Theatre stage. Um, but but the fact that uh, that Return to the Dirt did so well without the profile of Trent to sort of drive it, I go, that's amazing that actually our audience is willing to buy a ticket for a play there where they don't know the ending. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know how their night's going to end and, and they did that and they came out loving it. And they told their friends to go see it and their friends did and there's a young playwright now on his way as one of our um one of our successful Australian playwrights. It's really important to me with new plays that the playwrights come out the end of it wanting to write again. We don't have that many writers in Australia. Really yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, with it's Trent, really Trent Dalton's play, you know, that adaptation by Tim McGarry. Yeah. 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 And you go, that's the kind of, you know, Tim's spent a lifetime in theatre adapting works and fitting them for the audience. He is so gifted in that adaptation space. And I just love that he's had such a huge success at this point. Like the, the, the life in the theatre works to deliver you to the point where you can take on something like Trent's book and find, like impossible book, and find a way to put it on a stage. And it was a really great, great collaboration, I think, between Trent and Tim and Sam in finding a way for that to actually live so well. Uh, it's a very different thing in Return to the Dirt. There was no original story that Steve was adapting. It was his own story. So that thing of an, a new Australian work that is not an ad adaptation, it's like it's something out of nothing. Adaptation's a little bit easier. At least you know that there's a story that works, that yeah. did have an audience already. There's a courage in writing an original story that's not an adaptation of anything that is, oh, hats off to those writers, seriously. It's a leap in the dark. <laughs> Well, 2022 is looking good. Um, you've got about eight plays you've programmed in, in, in the season for next year. There's some classics, there's some new works, there's a, a revisiting of an Australian play, The Sunshine Club. Um, yes. It must be very exciting <laughs> programming a season. Oh, it's, oh look, I, I, have, I have the best job in the country. There's no question. There are not that many of us who in their lifetime get to decide the stories that audiences get to see and getting to put together, even in the hardest of times, getting to put together stories that you think will help and help the country be better. Um, making those choices is quite wonderful. It involves a lot of saying no to people. That's the shitty side of the job. Most of my job is saying no. But, but yes, in a program, I get to say eight yeses. And gee, they're amazing conversations to have with people. We want your play is one of the greatest things that you can say to a playwright. Um, and to look at to look at what we're doing next year, to be able to say to Christopher Johnston and, and, and Hannah Molansky, we want your play on the Queensland Theatre stage. I don't think people understand what a transformative moment that is for a playwright. Uh, you know, Hannah Molansky is young. It's her first play. Christopher Johnston probably won't ever write another play. He is a career soldier and he's writing very specifically about about a fictional version about what it was like to be deployed as an Australian soldier in Afghanistan. First casualty. Uh, Hannah Bolanski's on the beginning. Yeah, that's first casualty. Yes. It's, it's an amazing work. It's a, it's an, an act of extraordinary generosity by one of our soldiers to open up a window onto what some of those pressures were, what that was like in 2000, in the 2010, 11 space in that conflict. And look, we're going to spend the next 
hundred years understanding what we did in that conflict as a nation to another nation. And um, I think the, the fact that our theatre conversation is starting with the voice of a soldier is incredibly important. Uh, but it's, he's in such a different place to Hannah Polanski, who wrote Don't Ask What the Bird Looked Like. Uh, both of those plays came to us via the Queensland Premier's Drama Award, which is a playwriting competition. Uh, and not all writers will put their works into competition, nor, nor should they, but, but, but both of those writers came to, came to me via that, that competition. And I, and I love what that says about a playwriting competition. It's not always just about the play that wins. It's about all the other plays you come into contact with. And it's a chance for me to read works without knowing who's written them uh, and to decide on stories that I'm attracted to without all the other complicating factors. But those plays have finally made it to the stage. And I go, that's really wonderful. And they're set, sort of uh, sitting there as sort of these great beacons of, of new writing in a year that's, you know, we've got actually, well, there's another lovely thing that I want to do more of, which is actually a second production of a play, Almighty Sometimes by Kendall Fever, an Australian playwright. That, that play had its first production over in England and then we did it down at Griffin. And I playwrights talk about needing second productions a lot so that it's not just about write a new play but actually that that other people in other places want to do them and that, um, you know, Michael's, Michael Gale has been able to live the life that he has because of a way, you know, like a, a lot of productions of that. And you kind of go, every, play, every playwright needs their away if they're going to live. The play that will keep giving them uh, royalties from new productions. So we need to get back into the habit of doing second and third and fourth productions of plays. Um, so, so, yeah, so it is wonderful to kind of put a season together. And look, a season is a strange thing because sometimes I'm saying no to very, very good plays just because it won't work in a season. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't love that play, but it's just in a season of stories for an audience. A season is made for an audience, not for the artists necessarily. Um, I have to think if someone bought a, a full subscription to the to the company and they came eight times to the year, I can't give, keep giving them the same play over again. I can't even afford two that are the same in yeah, the year. True. Yeah. And there are some people where that's the only theatre they go to is those eight plays. So I've kind of got to give them a window in theatre from around the world, not just Australia. You know, what is the world thinking uh, yeah. and what are they writing? So Viet Gone is a beautiful example of that. There's a, a, an American writer whose parents moved to America as, as Vietnamese evacuees from the Vietnam War. And uh, uh, he's written about his experience about, uh, about what that is. So he's, he, well, what his, his parents' experience was. And it's a very funny play, but it's not, it's not what, what Australians think an American play looks like or sounds like. It's yeah. a piss take of American behaviour, and I think that's what will be so entertaining for an Australian audience. But it's also interesting for those, you know, those. I'm part of the part of the tribe of people who've moved. My parents moved when I was little. They were, you know, part of the force, the great forces of the 20th century, the wars of the 20th century that moved people around the world. So I haven't grown up with roots in a place. I'm part of the tribe of people who've moved. And if the 20th century was the dominance of the the tribes who've stayed. The 21st century is definitely about the rise of the stories of the people who've moved and what, what it is to tell those. And I think um, it's lovely to pull one from overseas and kind of go, see, they're just like ours, just American, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got Othello there, uh, the Bernhardt Ham Hamlet. Uh, is, it must be a new play by Teresa Rebeck. 
Rubik. Yeah, it? yes, it is. Well, it was sort of new in 2018. It's one of those plays that should have made its way around the world, but COVID sort of interrupted that. Um, but it's gorgeous. It, Teresa Rebeck's an amazing American writer. She's been writing all her life as part of a, a um, generation of women who were breaking down a lot of barriers when it came to um, representation of female story on stage. She's in her 60s now. Um, she's a bit of a legend. Uh, but what's interesting is that she's writing about Sarah Bernhardt. She's identified in the Sarah Bernhardt story, a reminder for all of, all of us that the fight for women to find their place and voice in the world started a long time ago with some exceptional people and that that journey towards the modern female voice started back in, back in the 19th century um, with people, you know, Sarah, Sarah Bernhardt was extraordinary. She was so successful. She was actually able to get into real estate. She built her own theatre. She was kind of like for, in, at that time, she was kind of like John Bell in the Australian sense in that he, he's done well enough to actually build a theatre in his name. His legacy is extraordinary. And that's what she did in her time. And as a woman, it's unbelievable. That's how good she was in the scheme of the world. And so it's this great play about her tackling Hamlet, which she had to do to just sell tickets. And like, come on, every doesn't every artistic director think, oh, should we do Hamlet? Because that'll sell. <laughs> and that's all she did as a producer. And then she had to tackle this play and figure out how to play Hamlet. And you kind of go, it's just this beautiful thing of her going, oh, I mean, some of the writing's great, but seriously, some of these sentences <laughs> uh, and, and the outrage, the outrage that, the, that society had that she would take on that role. But, you know, I was fortunate to see Kate um, Mulvaney play Richard III at Bell Shakespeare, and that was an extraordinary performance. And I kind of saw a little bit of what Kate was doing in tackling Richard um, in what Sarah Bernhardt is doing uh, in playing Hamlet, and I love that Teresa Rebeck has put her finger on the very thing that that we need to rem remember is that actually we're building on the uh, on the work of women of 120 years. You know, um, the, the right to, the right to vote. You know, we're trying to trying to get into the layers of the various institutions that actually could take away women's right to vote. We take it for granted that it it exists, but actually they're male-dominated institutions that actually still grant us the right to vote. If men in that handmaid's tale way <laughs> turned around and decided that actually it should be taken from us, it still could be. Yes. Because you don't have enough women in that, in that to, to ensure the right to vote. And, and that's here. Like the capacity of me to be sitting in this position is uh, the benefit of being having privilege in a, it's a very thin skin of privilege. This is, I'm very conscious there are not that many women in the world who have both the education and the freedom to hold a position like this. It's in a very small number of cities across the world when you think about it. Uh, and I don't take it for granted, but I am conscious that I have to use this position to see if I can't further the rights of women in other ways. I'm, I'm white and well-educated in a, a free society. If I... I don't take advantage of that to better the situation for other women than I'm, you know, wasting time. But I, but I can see my forebear in Sarah Bernhardt and in Teresa Rebecca. Well, more strength to you, Lee. May you uh, take the, um, the the flagship of the QTC to bigger and and greater heights. Um, it looks like it's well on its way. 
I've I've adored this this last hour of chat. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a very strange thing to you know to reflect back on across time, and I thank you for the opportunity to do that because so much of the my job is involved in forward thinking, forward planning. My brain's very firmly lodged in 2023 and 24 at the moment, so I don't often. Um, I'm not often asked to look back. And it can be a little bit confronting from time to time when I think, oh, geez, the time really has gone. But but again, that thing of we've got to look back to actually understand where we need to go. And I'm conscious in this COVID time uh, of not losing all of the knowledge that we've gathered over the last 50 years in Australian theatre. So looking back is important. You can learn more about QTC's exciting season for 2022 by going to www.queenslandtheatre.com. Thank you to my guest today, Director Lee Lewis. And thank you for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.